Welcome to the Concordia Publishing House podcast, where we consider everything in the light of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm your host, Elizabeth Pittman. Our guest today is Dr. Kurt Sensky. In his new book, The CEO and the Board, The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage, Dr. Sensky argues that for nonprofit organizations to build a healthy and strong board CEO relationship, along with the strong governance model, will give these organizations a competitive advantage vis-a-vis their peers. Is it worth it? Dr. Sensky argues, yes, it is. If we want our schools, faith-based organizations, social service organizations, churches, and the like, to add value to our communities and the world that we live in, this is an imperative step to take. But before we get started with our conversation with Dr. Sensky, I'd like to thank our friends at the LCMS Foundation for their support of the CPH podcast. Imagine a future where your God-given gifts continue to benefit your family and faith after you're called home to heaven. The LCMS Foundation can help you create a gift plan so that your retirement accounts, home or land, will leave a lasting impact on the people you love and on the ministries you care about the most. Visit lcmsfoundation.org to get started creating your own gift plan. Now on to our conversation with Dr. Kurt Sensky. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. So since the book, um, your new book, CEO and the Board has launched, you've been busy. Like we, We've seen you speaking, recording videos, really getting the word out about the book. What's it been like now that you have a, a new book launch to focus on in your retirement? Yes. Well, first of all, I think my wife would tell you that I have seriously flunked retirement. Uh, And I think it's a good thing, right? Because no matter where we are in each of our stages of life, we need to continue to use all of our talents. And what I'm finding is that um, virtually everyone who serves as a leader of an organization or who serves on a board of directors has a governance question. And so once they found out that I've written this book and heard maybe me speak or seen something on social media, um, my phone's ringing off the hook. And uh, but it's been it's been amazing. It's been wonderful because it allows me the opportunity to use, you know, the 30 plus years of my board experience, maybe as an opportunity to to help others. Tell us a little bit about your experience. You have a wealth of experience working on boards and then as the CEO working with boards. Just give us a quick overview of that experience. Yeah, so I was privileged to serve as CEO for 23 years. Of, it was Lutheran Social Services of the South. It's now called Uppering. And after I decided it was time to do something different there, um, uh, look for other opportunities. But also during the past 30 years, I've served on 11 different boards of directors. So I've served as chair of Thriving Financial, the Fortune 500 organization, currently serve as chair of Lutheran Hour Ministries. I've served on the LCMS Board of Directors. Chair is a LCMS Human Care and World Relief. Uh, just on and on and on. Um, but it's given me that wealth of experience, which now I'm uh, parlaying into a role as a facilitator, an advisor, a coach, a consultant for those organizations uh, who could use maybe some advice uh, with respect to their own governance needs. So as your phone is ringing off the hook, what are some of the most common questions that you're getting? You know, so it's interesting, and I don't know if I could phrase it into two or three exact questions, but the underlying theme of it is we know we're not doing something quite right, 
but we always do. We don't always know what that is. Uh, you know, sometimes there are real issues, but oftentimes it's just a, a, a need to really get back on track. Uh, the culture of their history of their organization has gotten them maybe a little bit complacent to do what they've always done. And with the world changing so dramatically, if you're thinking about technology, if you're thinking about the post-COVID uh, new competition, uh, different funding streams, et cetera, uh, it really does call for a need for a different approach to governance. So an organization can ensure that they've addressed the elephants in the room and that they've evolved so that they have now have a board governance system that fits the needs of them today. So what would you say to a consultant, and, and you share that this happens from time to time in the book, who tells an organization there is one governance model that you should be using? There's yeah. one be all end all, it's gonna do right by you. How would yes. you react to that? And I've heard, I've heard that from several consultants actually. And what I would say is it's a starting point um, because there are some great models out there. Uh, Policy-based governance is one. Some might use an operational model or more of an oversight management model. But it's, from my perspective, never the end, because every organization, whether you're a social service organization or a university, a school, a congregation, you have your own unique history, your own unique culture, your own unique operating environment, your own unique community. And that really calls for a governance model that is tailored to your unique situation. Uh, I was involved in the startup of a, a very small 501c3 organization, and that governance model is by necessity going to be much different than our 120-year-old upgrade organization. Uh, it just is. And so I think it flies in the face that you can have one model that fits all. It just doesn't make sense. So when it comes to choosing the right model, what are the roles and responsibility of every board and CEO, regardless of the model that they're going to land on? Yeah, that's a great, great question. You know, first of all, there's what we call the science of governance, and every board member and leadership team has a fiduciary responsibility to put the organization first. And so, you know, that could include, for example, having an audit committee uh, to ensure that that piece of the of the puzzle gets taken care of. It, but in addition to the science piece and ensuring that you fulfilled all of your fiduciary responsibilities. What I think is the next level in terms of creating a model that allows your organization to have missional success, which at the end of the day, all of us who are involved in organizations, that's our ultimate goal, is to create a governance model that will support that. And so there'll be a number of different pieces of that that the research demonstrates uh, uh, is important to an organization. So. One would be to have a healthy CEO board relationship to ensure that the CEO feels comfortable sharing everything with the board and that the board is comfortable sharing everything with the CEO. Another is to ensure that you have a, a, a board culture that allows the board and the leadership team to look forward, I like to say, at least 50% of the time so that they could really understand strategically where the organization needs to go, how it needs to evolve. And what's interesting to me is many organizations have a hard time doing this. They tend to look back, looking at financial reports, looking at the past quarter, looking at the past year. But 
as your organization evolves and as you want to remain relevant within your particular lane, it's really vital to be on the same page and to have those difficult conversations about what are the changes in the external environment? What is the art of the possibility that allows all of you to get on the same page in terms of the very compelling mission, but then to figure out also how do you effectively, how do you effectively implement and uh, measure? Um, because that's part of the board's responsibility as well. So in some ways, it, it's a many fact, a many piece issue. Um, you know, another example that boards historically haven't been great at, but are, are waking up to, is do you have the right skill sets and experiences sitting around the table? Um, I'm I'm amazed at how many boards have really well-meaning, wonderful people uh, on the board but don't necessarily have the skill sets to be of value to the, the leader, whether it's a, a pastor or organizational leader or a principal. And it, it requires intentionality to understand what is the appropriate diverse set of board members that uh, should be on the board. And what's interesting to me is the research is very clear that organizations with diverse boards, appropriately diverse boards for your situation, uh, are much more likely to be successful than those who have more homogeneous boards. So that triggers two questions for me. One, you talk about appropriately di appropriately diverse boards for your situation. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so depending on your organization, um, you, you may want to, for example, have a skill set within that uh, profession. So if, if you're an educator, if you're running a school or university, you may want to have somebody with education experience to, to have that perspective. You also may want to have somebody with CEO experience who's been there in that. Uh, you also, you know, for example, in my old organization, we had a lot of government contracts um, and we served, uh, for example, undocumented minors along the border. And it was really helpful for me to have diverse worldviews so that we would have both people with a Republican leaning and a Democrat leaning sitting around the table because it was interesting that that's, those perspectives could sometimes diverge, but our, the end result of our programs and the, 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 the strategy in which we created was a much better result as a result of having those different divergent views. And so every board and every organization is going to be a little bit unique so for example if you're in a congregation of course you're going to have probably board members all of the the same faith of the same congregation um and and that's okay that's probably a good thing because they have a passion for that congregation but then there are other situations where you really want diversity around the table including someone who's maybe had the experience of, of, of using your services or in the case of a foundation a former grant recipient uh, because they just happen to have a, a perspective, for example, a foster care mother that's different than maybe you or me sitting around that table. I'm thinking about, I serve on our church's board of directors. We have a meeting tonight, so I'm going around the room thinking about the skill sets that people bring. And we have a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, an accountant, me, you know, so it's, you know, there's there's a wide variety of real life experiences coming to that table. What are the, three, you mentioned three non-negotiables for every board member. Yeah. Tell us about those. Yeah, and you know, as I think about it, and I've been asked that question before, I'm probably up to five or six right now. <laughs> but, you know, so one, and to me, this is a non-negotiable, is 
prior to serving on the board, you have to have a passion for that organization. It's just going to make you a better board member as opposed to, you know, oftentimes we'll see someone who uh, an organization picks a community leader because it looks good. But that community leader may be well-meaning, but just doesn't know that organization well enough to have a passion for that. Um, in this day and age, uh, you need to have sufficient time to uh, be able to uh, devote to this organization. You know, oftentimes you go and thinking, well, we only meet three, four times a year, 10 times a year, uh, but it's pretty quick and it's pretty easy. What people tend to forget is that in the life cycle of an organization, there will be times when a board member really needs to lean in, whether it's selecting that next CEO or pastor, or if there is a, an, an issue or, or during times of COVID. Um, so it, it, it's having the necessary time. It's also understanding whether or not, and this goes to emotional intelligence, of whether or not you actually have the skill sets and experiences to uh, be of value to this particular board. Um, I know, I know a, a woman who was asked to serve on this board, uh, on a board because of her family's wealth, uh, but she had enough emotional maturity and intelligence to understand that, yeah, she's willing to give money and that's a fine, but she didn't really have anything to offer from a governance perspective. And with the complexity of organizations today and how fast our society and world is changing, I really think that it's important for both leadership and boards to put the governance piece first. Um, and, and then the other others will flow. There's, there's other ways to, for example, to attract people to get them involved if they happen to have resources that may be able to help your organization. It doesn't necessarily have to be on the board of directors. So I'm not sure if I was at three or four, but those are a few off the top of my head. That's all good. Tell us more about emotional intelligence, because I remember as I was reading that chapter, I was circling and highlighting just the whole section, because I think it's so important for all of us, no matter what role we function in day to day. But when it comes to emotional intelligence on the boards, what is it? And I think you started to tell us a little bit about why it matters, but just drill down into that a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, this was one of the biggest surprises in terms of the research that uh, I came across in, in writing this book is. And so emotional intelligence is the ability to manage and to influence your emotions and, and understand them and to recognize them. And in turn, to also influence the emotions of others and those around you. And so, for example, search firms such as Corn Ferry and Spencer Stewart, they're really finding and understanding now that one of the key components of a successful leader of an organization is to have a vast reservoir of emotional intelligence. Um, and we're also now seeing that with respect to boards of directors and especially in the board chair role, because you know one of the roles of a board chair is to herd the rest of the board members and to get them all on the same page. And it, it takes a lot of emotional intelligence in order to be able to do this. Um, Daniel Goleman wrote the, the famous book, Emotional Intelligence. And one of the things that he talks about is in a group setting, such as a board of directors, you're, you're, you can also have a collective amount of emotional intelligence, but, and it will never be more than your individual scores, say, but someone without requisite amount of emotional intelligence can actually bring a group um, success down. And so it's really important to understand what an individual's emotional intelligence is like as you're interviewing them, not only for a leadership position, but also for um, 
a board position as well. And what's also interesting to me is that only about 33% of people uh, have what uh, Daniel Goleman would say is sufficient emotional intelligence. So, it, and it's a skill that can be learned, but you have to be very intentional about it. And 33% sounds really frighteningly low. I know, I know, right? Exactly, exactly. And and that's why you often see leadership fail. You often see boards not necessarily um, uh, f- fulfill their, their greatest potential. So speaking of potential, tell us a little bit, tell us some of the hallmarks of both positive and negative leadership. <laughs> yeah, so. I won't know, put a number be, on it. <laughs> yeah, one would be integrity um, and, and you know, I'm talking about leadership now, probably, at, you know, on, on the staff level, but also this could apply to, to board members as well. Uh, the other is to have a growth mindset, uh, always being willing and, and understanding and learning. You know, I think about in my own situation, how technology has changed virtually every organization, including, of course, the publishing world uh, within the last couple of decades. Right. And, and if you as a leader aren't willing to adjust and change and to understand and learn, you're, you're not going to be a success over a long period of time. Um, the other is to, you know, the ability to put yourselves, put yourself last. Uh, you know, some people call it servant leadership. Some people call it level five leadership. But it's the understanding that your team and your organization truly have to come first. And that seems a little bit countercultural and, and almost even biblical, right? But What's fascinating to me in, in one of the earlier books that I wrote is that the secular research also demonstrates that by following the golden rule, by putting others first, um, you will have, you're more likely to have long-term success uh, than those who don't. And so not only is it the right thing to do, it's actually a really good business strategy. How can an organization cultivate that servant leadership? I think it starts at the top and, you know, there, I will take a step back though and say, no matter where anybody is within an organization, even within your own world, within your own team, you can model this and you can, you may not be able to change the whole organization, but you can change your world. Um, And and the the same for board members. But I also think that um, it's incumbent for boards of directors when they're bringing on new leaders to really put a focus on this. Um, and it's more than, you know, so it, 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 it takes a little bit of work to figure out uh, who is and who isn't, right? It's more than me saying, oh, I'm a servant leader, but uh, there are opportunities by viewing individuals in different ways and different arenas, different perspectives. So having dinner with them, uh, having a breakfast with them, seeing them in their own world, um, seeing them with their spouse, um, all can provide you with different clues uh, to understand whether or not servant leadership is something genuine or not. Um, again, it's a, it's a trait that's hard to learn, but if you have it, you're more likely to be successful than if you don't. And it will then permeate throughout the organization. The servant leaders tend not to um, put up with those who are not. And so they will attract those who um, fit that style of leadership as well. You know, you'll hear tales from people who serve on boards or from CEOs and, and leadership. And there's just that one curmudgeon board member. You know, if we didn't have to deal with board member, you know, so-and-so, 
just as he throws a wrench into the works every single time. Is there a role for a difficult board member? You know, I'm laughing because uh, I serve on a, it's a secular board of directors as we speak, and we have one of those. <laughs> and I'm I'm sure he's a nice guy, but I haven't found it yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm sure he is. And, and he's actually a really smart and intelligent individual. So I, I'll take a step back and I will say that, yes, there is a role for a curmudgeon if they do it in the proper way. So, you know, we in a, in a past board that I was chair of, we had what I would call a gadfly. And this individual was fearless in terms of bringing up the elephants in the room, in terms of taking the opposite uh, perspective, in terms of kind of pushing just for the sake of argument, uh, but in a nice way. And while it sometimes frustrated the CEO and other board members, what resulted was we got into much more of an in-depth conversation in terms of the issue that we were talking about at the day. And so he played a huge and important role in allowing us as an organization to have a more defined and refined strategy going forward. To me, I love having one or two gadflies on the board of directors because they're, they bring up the issues that nobody else wants to talk about and you need to talk about them. Um, well, the only other thing I was gonna add real quick is, but if there is a problem board member, then I think, you know, probably if the board chair is capable of doing this, that individual needs to have those kind of conversations, maybe even saying, you know, maybe your talents can be better served on different boards or not this board. And are you really happy here? And do you know how you're coming across? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I think everyone deserves having those conversations because there are instances where uh, board members can either intentionally or unintentionally harm an organization. You mentioned the elephant in the room. Why is it so important that we not only name the elephant in the room, but we deal with it? Yeah. Whatever the whatever the particular elephant is for a particular organization. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting is every organization, no matter how well run, no matter how successful, as it evolves, will develop what I call an elephant in the room. So it could be an outdated or antiquated bylaw and articles. It could be a new competition, it could be outdated technology. Um, and the the issue, the problem with not addressing it in an open, transparent, trust-filled environment is pretty quickly you, your organization will no longer be impactful. And it, it's incumbent to have a long, in, in terms of having a, a long uh, future, uh, bright future going forward, that you continually address, address the elephants in the room. Um, you know, it may be a less than secure funding stream. It may be uh, COVID. Uh, and, and to figure out, all right, here it is. What do we need to do about it? And, you know, one question I like to ask boards when I facilitate this type of conversation is, if you had no history, if you were all a brand new board and a brand new leadership team, what would you do? And that answer is usually pretty easy. Then the question becomes, all right, you may not be able to do this tomorrow, but then what's the stair-step game plan to ultimately get there? Because we all agree you need to get there. Uh, but oftentimes it's culture and fear and history and people, maybe past board members who haven't kept up with what's going on, not understanding your decisions and you're afraid to do it. 
gotta name those elephants and go after them. It's hard. It is really hard, especially in you know in the church and nonprofit organizations. And it, it can be really, really tricky to do that. What does a healthy CEO board relationship look like? You know, it, it's the ability to have a trust build relationship where the CEO feels comfortable sharing everything and the board feels that they are a true partner within this relationship. And so, you know, oftentimes a CEO will get frustrated because he, he feels the board's micromanaging or she feels the board's micromanaging or that they just don't have the skill sets to be useful to the CEO. And then the board gets frustrated because oftentimes they don't feel like the CEO is effectively using their skill sets in time. And so the, the, the effective board CEO relationship is one where you collectively take the time to get to know each other and to understand each other. And then the CEO coming in, assuming that you have an appropriate board with the right skill sets and experiences sitting around that table to listen, to maybe push back, to educate, uh, to be a partner with. Because what's interesting to me is oftentimes people think, all right, the board's the boss and the CEO reports to the board. And that's true legally. However, the reality is that probably 95% of the time or 90% of the time, the CEO is really in charge making the day-to-day -day decisions because the board's really involved in maybe 50, 75 hours a year. And so at, at most, they're a partnership. And oftentimes the CEO is, quote, the boss. And so a, a board needs to understand that, to understand when it is being a boss, when it is being a partner, when it is being a confidant, when it is being a therapist, when is it being a cheerleader? Because the board has to play all of those roles. Understanding, and I'm very sensitive to this, having you know served with a number of CEOs now, that is a really difficult job. And so, and it's a lonely job because you don't really have a peer uh, within your organization. And so one of the roles of the board, from my perspective, is how do you effectively support that CEO uh, to ensure that when they feel valued, that they remain healthy and that they remain able to continue to add value to the organization. So you, the, the subtitle of your book is The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage. What is the competitive advantage that organizations will gain as they can master this art of governance? Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, I think that is the question of the day, because I think when board members and, and leaders think about governance, they don't necessarily tie it to the ultimate mission of the organization. And the research, the research, as well as it's coupled with my experience and others, CEOs and board members' experiences, is that there is a direct correlation between effective governance as well as a healthy CEO board relationship and organizational success. And so you need to have effective governance and you need to have that healthy relationship in order to achieve your missional goals. Um, and I think it's almost impossible to do that without effective governance. And so one example that I, I would give is, you know, it's, it's in my opinion, it's the boards and leadership team shared responsibility to create and craft a, a, a mission uh, that we can all rally around and get excited about. And we're all in the same direction going forward. 
What's fascinating to me is that in only about 10% of nonprofit organizations do they actually accomplish their strategic plan. And it, the other statistic that always floors me is only about 30% of the leadership team and board actually even knows what the mission is. Um, now they can talk about it in general terms, but they can't talk about it specifically like, you know, John F. Kennedy saying, we're going to put a man on the moon within the next 10 years, or my old organization, we like to talk about, we're going to break the cycle of child abuse in the state of Texas. It's, and so without an effective governance model where you're looking forward and, and strategically talking about where we can have the most impact within our communities and who do we need to have around the table to have these valuable conversations, you're probably not going to be successful. And all of that comes back to governance. And to me, that's why governance is, it can be a competitive advantage. It can also be a competitive disadvantage. What Do we have a unique advantage in this as a Christian organizations? You know, from my perspective, yes. And, and the reason is a couple of things. One is we as Christians who work in these Christian organizations um, can bring our entire being to the table. And I think that's important. I think um, that, it, at least for me, it gives me an energy that I wouldn't have otherwise because I'm doing this not for myself. I'm doing this because, you know, I'm the hands and feet of, of Christ here on this earth. And this is my small opportunity to, to, to make a difference uh, that, you know, we, we've all been created for his workmanship and, and to do good works, right? Um, but the other reason is that, um, you know, as an as a Christian organization, uh, it's a mission that I think um, it's hard not to get up in in the morning to to go to work for. Whether we're spreading the gospel or serving the least of these or educating uh, tomorrow's adults and and, and 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 board members in our local congregation, um, all of this is important work. And uh, to me, it's, it's a lot more exciting to do this type of work as opposed to maybe making shareholders a few extra dollars, as important as that might be in some worlds. Uh, I think we have a unique advantage because we have this natural mission uh, that allows us to work together and for the common good. How can, how can you see your book being useful to pastors and church leaders? Yeah. You know, uh, I, I see it in, on a couple of levels. One is I, the more that I've become involved with um, governance uh, conversations with various different local congregations, the more I'm convinced there's not much difference uh, between a nonprofit organization and a congregation. You know, they each obviously have their unique history and their unique culture. They need to decide whether or not the pastor is going to be a, quote, CEO type, or is he going to be more of a chaplain model type, um, and, and the, the lay People will be more of the, 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 the in charge. Uh, and those, to me, that's the science of governance. And, and um, you know, David Peter wrote that great book, uh, Organizing for Mission and Ministry, uh, that I think every congregation should take a look at. But to me, it's a great first step. But congregations are human uh, entities as well. And so uh, it also includes the whole art of governance, where uh, emotional intelligence matters, uh, you know, the, the lower level strategies in terms of how congregations want to make an impact in the community, whether it's through the Lutheran school, whether it's through Boy Scouts, whether it's through uh, the different programs that they have. All of this 
in, dictates that uh, a congregation needs to develop a right governance model for their unique situation. And to me, that's the art of governance. Well, it's, there's so much good information in here that no matter where you serve, you're going to find something useful. Before we wrap up, I understand that you have a very special writing companion that helped you throughout the process of writing your book. Tell us about yeah. your writing companion. Yes, I have a dog who's sleeping right behind me, actually. His name's Buck. Um, he's a minpin, a miniature pincher. He's 11 years old. We um, got him about a year ago because, sadly, his um, previous owner passed away. And so we agreed to adopt him. And he is just the most wonderful dog because he loves to sit on my lap while I write. And he loves to sit on my lap while I do Zoom calls. And so he's the perfect companion. And, and for some reason, he doesn't seem to get bored about when I talk about governance all day long. It, it must soothe him. Let him lets him relax. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, well, I appreciate you joining us today to talk about your new book, The CEO and the Board, The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage. We will put a link to the book in the show notes. So listeners, viewers, I encourage you to go take a look. Um, whether you, you yourself serve on a board or are a leader in an organization, there's a, so much helpful information in here, and immediately you'll find lots of things to circle and highlight and go, yeah, we need to work on this, or we're doing okay here. So very, very useful book. Um, again, visit the show notes for the link to that. Kurt, it's always good to see you. Elizabeth, likewise. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon. All right. Listeners, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Concordia Publishing House podcast. I pray that this time was valuable to your walk with Christ. We'd love to connect with listeners on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Concordia Pub. Visit cph.org for more resources to grow deeper in the gospel.